the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering. Glad to have you with us. Later in the program, we'll hear from Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down, a storyteller's, a storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus. That's coming up. Uh, later in the program, we'll also take a look at the uh, the church in Ukraine, which surprisingly is quite uh, healthy and vigorous. It's uh, the number one missions sending church in that region. We'll tell you more about that later in today's program. Well, here closer to home, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler announced a plan to create a central office to address homelessness in the city, tasked with overseeing and coordinating staff and programs across multiple bureaus. The mayor said the Street Services Coordination Center will be the hub of the city's work around unsheltered homelessness and make us a much better partner to Multnomah County. He was speaking in a press conference on Wednesday. Well, the mayor of Portland said he would issue an emergency declaration to create the office. It will oversee homeless services across multiple city bureaus in a structure similar to the type of emergency command center format that the city uses during floods and other natural disasters. Well, Portland's current uh, efforts to address homelessness are uh, siloed within separate bureaus, Wheeler said. And the city's government structure makes it difficult for staff to, or on different programs to coordinate their actions to avoid doubling up or contradicting each other. Today's emergency declaration cuts through our antiquated form of city government, the mayor said. Well, I'm at least heartened that he's talking about it, whether that or not that translates into uh, something useful on the ground. We'll have to wait and see. But I'm encouraged that at least uh, they're trying to be more efficient. Well, the city office or the central office will be able to know how many shelter beds are available on a daily basis, where they're located. The mayor said enabling members of the city's navigation team to more directly connect homeless Portlanders to services. Well, the team will also be expanded from five people to 25, he said, and will go out and meet with homeless Portland residents to offer services rather than waiting for residents to come and ask for help. Wheeler said he's also working to secure resources so team members can offer on-demand transportation. Well, the hub will be overseen by Mike Myers. uh, No, not that Mike Myers, who's previously served as Portland Fire Chief, director of the city's Bureau of Emergency Management, and most recently the city's Community Safety Transition Director. The order is time to get the central hub up and running by the summer, the mayor said. It's also going to coincide with the rollback of various pandemic safety measures as the Omicron wave subsides. Those measures have um, hampered the city's ability to step up homeless services in the past two weeks. Now, I'm grateful that they're providing homeless services, but my question is, is this going to address homelessness uh, in and of itself? Is it simply to service those who are living on the streets or is it to try to help get them off the streets? It wasn't altogether clear to me. That that's the priority, but we'll continue to follow that story. Meanwhile, increased wildfire risk, rising energy costs, and general inflation are driving big rate increase requests from 
Pacific Corps for uh, its Pacific Power Utility here in Oregon. The company on Tuesday proposed an eight point, uh, excuse me, an eighty-two point two million dollar rate hike, six point six percent overall, and nine point one percent for residential customers in twenty twenty three to pay for system investments. Now that's going to increase the cost of electricity rather dramatically. At the same time, natural gas and oil are increasing. Well, the company on Tuesday proposed the uh, the rate hike. Separately, Berkshire Hathaway owned Pacific Core forecast that power costs will rise seventy million dollars or five point six percent. For residential rate payers, the double whammy would add up to an average of fourteen point three percent increase. The filings show that residential customers using an average of 900 kilowatt hours a month would see their monthly bills rise about $13. For general service, commercial and industrial customers, the increase uh, would be about 10.4%. But how much rates actually change will be determined by the Public Utility Commission, a process uh, running through most of the year and by later... um, an update on power costs. Two years ago, Pacific Corp proposed 6% rate increase. It turned into a 1.6% decrease as regulators trimmed the company's requested return on equity. This allowed some coal plant investments and put off dealing with a big batch of coal decommissioning costs. Well, rate payers also benefited then from a big decline in power costs, partly related to inexpensive new wind power backed by federal tax credits. In the end, net average rates fell 5.2 percent. But power prices, low for years, have turned around in the last year. In the wholesale market and for natural gas, the cost of taking on rising wildfire risk is now showing up in a very big way. So you can expect to see uh, higher prices on your electricity bill. Meanwhile, the Oregon State Senate passed an omnibus House bill. We talked about it yesterday, 4034 by 18 to 12 along party lines. In sections 9 through 12, the bill exempted the Reproductive Health Equity Act from longstanding automatic sunset provisions and granted the Oregon Health Authority indefinite power to implement reproductive health services and education programs by rulemaking. Well, lawmakers described this portion of the bill as a technical fix that would have no fiscal impact. Famous last words. Well, this bill grants broad authority to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats to push their pro-abortion agenda. Lois Anderson laments. She's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. The fact that this bill was rushed through a short session without dialogue or debate, frankly, is... Well, frightening. Throughout the legislative process, uh, lawmakers on the D side were extremely reticent to respond to questions and concerns raised by constituents and Republican lawmakers. Uh, Lois Anderson continued, pro-life advocates sent thousands of emails. Lawmakers also received hundreds of calls. We um, still don't know um, what's being accomplished by the reproductive health care portion of this bill. No answers were forthcoming. The Reproductive Health Care Equity Act passed in 2017 acquired health insurance providers to cover abortions completely. Taxpayer funds are used to fulfill this requirement for individuals on the Oregon uh, health plan under a 1985 law. Legal requirements that compel health insurance companies to provide specific coverage are automatically sunset after six years. Well, um, this would have ended in 2023, but now it's exempt from that regulation, sadly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, as we always do from time to time, but we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
Coming up later in the program, we'll hear from Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down. Also, we'll take a uh, look at the Ukrainian church and how it managed to become kind of the central point for the Eastern uh, Eastern Europe. Anyway, we'll get into that later in the program. Well, despite last year that Portland became the number one homicide rate increase city in America, the politicians aim to crack down on a different crime priority by passing a law this week completely banning fireworks all year round as a way to reduce fires and fight climate change. It also bans sky lanterns. Well, it's good to know that they're right on the front lines of issues of concern to most residents of the city. Well, Portland Commissioner Dan Ryan said, we're in a climate crisis that's forcing everybody to look at their pleasures that they get out of life and then wonder what ones do we need to let go of as we learn collectively to do everything we can to preserve our precious planet as long as we can. So that one day a year when you have it's going to end global warming. Well, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, she wrote, we know that we are in a climate disaster and we know that these severe weather temperatures, wildfires are not going to end anytime soon. As a community committed to climate mitigation, we must change behavior. Now, they're mixing metaphors here. You've got the the wildfires. That's one thing. And if if fireworks are responsible for wildfires in areas where there are forested land, okay, that's one thing. But to suggest that banning fireworks Uh, is going to somehow mitigate climate change, it seems a bit confusing to me. Well, keep in mind, Portland recently blocked police from enforcing minor traffic laws and effectively made it legal to riot by blocking highways and neighborhood streets at all hours. That's okay. Well, this means Portland is legalizing many dangerous crimes while making it illegal uh, to enjoy everyday activities. Speaking of rioting, uh, here were the, uh, uh, the riot fires during a 10 day period in 2020. Those are actually OK. Apparently, riot fires and arson as a part of the political protest do not contribute to global warming. Only ordinary citizens in their backyards with a, spr- a sparkler contribute to global warming. So there's our uh, our city council. I'm tempted to just buy some sparklers. Just I'm a law abiding citizen. I won't do it because now we cannot in the city of Portland. But I might just go to um, Beaverton and. Try a sparkler or two. Well, the White House on Wednesday unveiled a plan for fighting COVID-19 in its new phase. And it's apparently in a new phase with the virus moving from a crisis to a lower level risk that does not dominate daily life. It is endemic rather than pandemic. Well, the plan comes as the Omicron wave has declined. Many are eager to turn the page on the pandemic in general. The president in his State of the Union address you may have heard on Tuesday night said COVID-19 no longer needs control needs to control our lives um, in this new moment. Well, the 96-page plan, 96-page plan will require new funding from Congress, the White House said, though there are uh, not specific dollar amounts for each item. Ahead of a March 11th deadline for funding the government, the White House recently informally outlined the need for $30 billion focused on domestic needs and $5 billion for global vaccinations. To fully execute on this plan, the president said, it requires Congress doing its part to invest in tools that work. The document states this plan lays out the roadmap to help us fight COVID-19 in the future as we move America from crisis to a a time when COVID-19 does not disrupt our daily lives and is something we prevent, protect against and treat. That's a lot of money to do we don't know what. Well, the risk of a new variant that upends progress remains a threat, and the plan calls for increased surveillance and data collection aimed at monitoring for new variants. 
The National COVID-19 Preparedness Plan is organized around four main areas. Protect against and treat COVID-19, prepare for new variants, prevent shutdowns, and vaccinate the world. All of it. Well, it calls for scaling up vaccine production to uh, to be able to produce an additional 1 billion vaccine doses per year. A new test to treat program announced by the president on Tuesday night will allow people to get treatments on the spot at a pharmacy if they test positive uh, with the first sites launching this month. After shortages of tests plagued the country around Christmas and with the Omicron wave, the plan calls for continued investments in improving testing supplies. Well, the new website will give people information about the various risk levels in their area, as well as nearby resources like where to get the free mask or vaccine. The administration will work with Congress to reinstate tax credits to help small and mid-sized business provide paid sick and family leave to deal with COVID-related absences, the plan says, as part of an effort to bring workers back in person, including the federal workforce. The global vaccination effort, where advocates have for months been pushing for greater urgency and action, will focus in part on helping get shots in arms uh, abroad after the doses themselves are delivered. But like other elements of the plan, the plan notes this effort would require more funding from Congress. Now, my question is, how does this impact uh, individuals who are forced out of their livelihood by federal mandates? Um, I haven't read the plan. Perhaps it's mentioned there, but that was not highlighted uh, in the announcement made by the president or the plan uh, that was just released. Well, in other news, uh, Russia's military is claiming to have seized Kherson as the Black Sea port city of Odessa. Ukraine's third largest could come under attack by President Vladimir Putin's army as early as today. Russian forces laid siege of two Ukrainian seaports, continued bombarding the nation's two largest cities, uh, Kharkiv and Kiev, as uh, Russia and Ukraine battle for the eighth day. It seems like much longer, does it not? But this is only the eighth day. The Biden administration is requesting at least $10 billion in new money to provide aid to Ukraine with uh, Vladimir Putin's war against the nation, according to the Office of Management and Budget. And several Russian warships from Crimea are heading to Odessa and an amphibious assault could come as early as, well, today, U.S. officials uh, are saying. 24-7 alerts um, are being given to try to keep up with going on, but it's difficult with this fast-moving uh, engagement. Well, the Department of Homeland Security announced that uh, Ukrainian citizens will be able to stay in the U.S. for up to 18 months with temporary protected status. Russia's pre, uh, premeditated and unprovoked attack on Ukraine has resulted in an ongoing war, senseless violence, and Ukrainians forced to seek refuge in other countries. That's a quote from Secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas in a statement today in these extraordinary times, we will continue to offer our support and protection to Ukrainian nationals in the United States. Well, the decision was made due to the ongoing war there with the United Nations estimating that close to one million people have already fled the country after Russia's invasion last week. This invasion has caused a humanitarian crisis with significant numbers of individuals fleeing and damage to civilian infrastructure that has left many without electricity or water or access to food, basic supplies, a shelter, emergency medical services, the Department of Homeland Security said in its statement. Well, the U.S. doesn't stand a fighting chance if Russia and China combine their cyber tech 
according to a former Pentagon official. And there's some concern that that may be the response we receive from Russia in conjunction with China, who's also considering whether or not uh, now is the time to move or in the near future on Taiwan. U.S. infrastructure cyber defense at kindergarten level stands no chance against China-Russia alliance, former Pentagon officials say. China may already be sharing data with Russia, and America wouldn't stand a fighting chance. Uh, not many nations would be able to push back, Nicholas Shalane uh, said. I don't even think the United States would be able to push back if tomorrow Russia and China decided to come together against us. I think it would be very difficult for us to uh, even have a fighting chance, let alone a nation like Ukraine. Well, Russia entered its eighth day of fighting after invading Ukraine. That was on the 24th of last month. Western intelligence projected the superpower would quickly sweep through its neighbor, uh, but Ukraine still controls its capital, Kiev. The question is, how long? Jelaine says this is not the full force of the Russian capability, which he called tremendous. They have not used the most innovative cyber uh, capabilities yet, he says. They're focusing on the more traditional warfighting capabilities. We have to be cautious. I always remind people that Russian President uh, Putin is not stupid. We may not yet understand what his plan was all about. But the former Pentagon official said he's way more scared about China. Jelaine said it would be uh, game-changing if China provided Russia with advanced technologies. He believes China would uh, first give Russia cyber offense capabilities. You also have some AI and machine learning capabilities that could be used to look at satellite imagery and find where troops are located, be able to do better real-time analysis of what's going on on the ground, Shalane said. The former Pentagon official said he wouldn't be surprised if China was already sharing data with Russia, but he warned of possible repercussions if the U.S. or other Western nations offered the same support to Ukraine. We have the... I have to be very careful, he said. We've, uh, we start providing cyber offensive capabilities. Uh, nothing stops Russia from fighting back and going after our critical infrastructure. So this is a very uh, difficult chess game. The International Institute for Strategic Studies placed the U.S. as the lone country and uh, its top tier when assessing 15 nations' cyber power. China and Russia were ranked in the second tier along with Western countries like France and the United Kingdom. But Shalane said the cyber defense for critical infrastructure like power and water systems is at the kindergarten level. It would be very impactful to U.S. I hate that word impactful. Is that really even a word impactful? I digress. It would be very impactful, I'm quoting, uh, to U.S. citizens if something were to happen, Shalane said. Uh, They would potentially take down the grid for weeks, if not months. Very sobering. And the place to begin that battle is for those of us who have access to the um, the sovereign of the universe is on our knees. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break. A reminder in the second hour, they turned the world upside down. Imagine that they didn't have the technology, the education or the advancements that we do. But yet they turned the world upside down. Charles Martin will be my guest in the five o'clock hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she supports banning all Russian oil to the United States with growing momentum in Congress to find additional ways to cut off revenue streams to Russian President Putin. I'm all for that, 
ban it, she said. This was uh, at a press conference at the Capitol today. Well, bipartisan members of Congress have been pushing legislation to ban oil imports from Russia. And Republicans especially have been calling for more domestic oil and gas production in the wake of Russia's assault on Ukraine. The United States of America, we are importing Russian energy. That's a quote from Texas Representative Michael McCall, the top Republican in the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Tuesday. This means um, this needs to stop. We are funding Putin's war machine. Well, the most recent data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration shows that in December, the U.S. imported 405,000 barrels per day of crude oil and petroleum products from Russia or almost 5 percent of all U.S. imports for the month. That's down from 800,000 barrels in August. The largest exporters of energy to the United States are Canada and Mexico. And while supporting a Russian oil ban, Pelosi didn't agree with reopening federal land and uh, to oil and gas drilling, which President Biden sought to ban at the start of his presidency. We were energy independent at one point, you might recall. I'm not for drilling on public lands, she went on to say. Well, as gas prices skyrocket across the country, she said the price of oil is directly related to what's happening in Ukraine. She downplayed the pain at the pump in comparison to the war of Ukraine and what they're enduring. I heard a parliamentarian from Ukraine today saying our people are being killed, our country's being overrun, and people are complaining about paying a little more for the price of gas. Well, we don't want people to have to pay a little more for the price of gas, Pelosi said. Now, she's conflating two very different things. People are upset here because we were... uh, uh, Energy independent, and that was given up. So it has less to do with uh, what's happening in Ukraine than the long-term policy, or at least the year-long policy of the current administration. But she also expressed, and I'm referring to Speaker Pelosi, caution at an effort to implement a gas tax holiday, saying that legislation would need to have the language to guarantee the savings would be passed down to consumers and not hoarded by the oil companies for more profit. That would be a path that we, uh, uh, we can take, Pelosi said, of the gas holiday. We'll see what actually happens. Well, Eastern Europe is the evangelical hub, we're being told, um, of the uh, of Eastern Europe. And as we pray for uh, their future and what happens next, we remember that the church has been vibrant there and they are a mission sending uh, country and it's impacting missionaries from all over the world. Um, pray for Ukraine, the nation, pray for its people and remember to pray for Uh, believers who, in addition to seeking safety and shelter, are crying out to God, what do we do now? Well, after launching an invasion of Ukraine, Russian President uh, Putin sparked even more global concerns when he put his nuclear forces on high alert. An analyst for nuclear deterrence and missile defense at the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense uh, was asked what to make of those statements. Is it just a matter of bravado or is this a genuine concern? Well, she's written extensively on Russia's nuclear capabilities and previously worked on the staff of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And her answers to the question um, uh, might be helpful to those of us who are concerned about whether or not we are on the verge of the start of a new Cold War or the start of World War Three. Well, when asked if Putin put Russia's nuclear forces on high alert during the invasion of Ukraine um, and the likelihood that he would actually use nuclear weapons, Um, And on who and what she responded, the simplest answer to this question is that while the likelihood is not high, that's encouraging, it's not zero. Well, that's concerning. Well, the threat must be taken seriously. Unlike the U.S., where Americans generally believe nuclear weapons should never be used, Russia incorporates nuclear weapons into its warfighting doctrine. 
Uh, it has over 2,000 low-yield, non-strategic, a.k.a. battlefield nuclear weapons that Russia might use in a conventional conflict in Europe to compel the enemy to back down. Putin has been uh, using nuclear saber-rattling during the build-up to his invasion of Ukraine, threatening nuclear war and conducting nuclear exercises. The hope, I suppose, was that it would be a deterrent. That hasn't worked, so who knows what happens next. Well, if Russia continues to fail in its conventional military efforts to take hold of Ukrainian cities and topple the government, Putin might see the explosion of a nuclear weapon in Ukraine or at sea as his best way to compel Ukrainians to surrender or prevent additional outside intervention. But he should uh, know that using nuclear weapons would break the 75-year taboo the world has established against using such weapons. Now, my guess is he's not altogether concerned about breaking a taboo. Uh, Doing so would certainly cause him and Russia more harm than hurt. A nuclear attack on Ukraine beyond the potential damage to the Ukrainian countryside and people would only immensely strengthen the international response, deeply undermining his efforts at uh, subjugating his neighbors. Less likely is a nuclear attack on a NATO state or the U.S. because Putin knows well that uh, he can expect a prompt nuclear response on Russian soil. But the important message here is that in the fog of war, especially against an aggressive uh, autocrat, the United States and its allies should be prepared for anything. Again, it's um, concerning. When asked if a nuclear attack by Russia on the United States seems extremely unlikely, what should the U.S. response and that of NATO if Russia hits Ukraine with a nuclear weapon? What should that response be? Well, she suggested that a nuclear attack on Ukraine would be unnecessary, unjustified and absolutely criminal. Well, of course, we all agree on that, but that may not be his strategy. Putin started the war of choice in the absence of a real threat to Russian security, despite Russian disinformation. Failure on the battlefield of an illegal and immoral conflict would hardly be a reason to resort to the world's most dangerous weapons. Well, of course, that's a logic we would all embrace, but that may not be his logic. Well, she goes on to suggest that Ukraine is not a NATO member and therefore the United States doesn't extend its nuclear umbrella over Ukraine, nor are the United States and NATO currently involved in the conflict militarily, so they have no obligation to respond using military force. That said, the United States, with its NATO allies, would need to coordinate a strong response that addresses the horrors of a nuclear attack on Ukraine and deters further aggression. So, again, it's not particularly encouraging to consider that possibility and how we might or might not respond. Uh, Out of curiosity, how much of the United States could be reached by a Russian nuclear attack? And this is certainly hypothetical, but perhaps of some interest. All of it, she says, in response. So um, concerning. Unfortunately, the United States also maintains a nuclear triad that can strike all of Russia, providing a strong deterrent to a Russian attack. So Uh, That strength may prevent any of that from happening. The difference is that while Russia has modernized its nuclear forces about 90 percent of the way through, the U.S. still relies on platforms built during the Cold War. For instance, the U.S. is still squeezing the life out of the Minuteman III intercontinental ballistic missile that was designed in 1960. Programs to replace these outdated capabilities with modern systems are just getting underway and each year must overcome opposition from members of Congress. Well, does the United States have an adequate missile defense system in place under the worst case scenario to defend itself or to defend allies from a Russian nuclear attack? Uh, Many Americans find it hard to believe that we have no way to defend against a major Russian nuclear attack. Now, this is highly hypothetical, but questions I think people are 
at least considering the U.S. missile defense system is designed to defend against limited nuclear attacks from rogue states such as North Korea. We have 44 homeland interceptors that couldn't defend against Russia's hundreds of nuclear missiles. And again, she has already said it's highly unlikely that that would be a scenario we would face. By most counts, Russia has several hundred more nuclear warheads than the United States. How relevant is this? Well, the disparity you see is explained by what we call Russia's non-strategic nuclear weapons. Um, When it comes to strategic nuclear forces like ICBMs able to reach each other's homeland, the U.S. and Russia have rough parity from the New START arms um, control treaty. But the New START excludes this entire category of non-strategic weapons that Russia has. As mentioned, Russia has at least 2,000 of these weapons and is even predicted uh, to have doubled this number by the end of um, uh, or to predict to double that number by the end of the decade. Now, again, this is highly hypothetical. But given the situation that we find ourselves in and the fact that many never thought we'd uh, face this kind of of dilemma uh, in the 21st century, it's worth at least considering. Well, anything else about Russia's nuclear capabilities that Americans should keep in mind as uh, Putin's rhetoric harshens? Well, she says Americans should understand the different roles that nuclear weapons play in Russia and the United States. Moscow considers its status as a major nuclear state critical to its desire to be treated as a great power. Despite public statements to the contrary, Moscow seems to believe nuclear weapons can be used as a conflict to win. Russia violates nuclear treaties and lies about it. The United States views nuclear weapons as a tool primarily for deterrence, preventing war completely or preventing war from escalating beyond the conventional. And while Russia builds new and dangerous nuclear systems, we have to fend off proposals from uh, the left to dismantle the nuclear systems that we have. Bottom line, she says, as much as U.S. policymakers might like to wish away nuclear weapons from existence, unfortunately, the enemy gets a vote. Putin's recent inflammatory rhetoric, nuclear uh, saber rattling and military actions in Ukraine are proof of the need for strong modern U.S. nuclear force. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. As I'm thinking about all the speculation about which weapons might be used, what course uh, Russia might take, the outcome for the rest of the world, I'm reminded of Isaiah 2.4. Uh, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's hard to imagine a time in which that will be the case, but I long for that when he will judge the nations and war will be no more. We need to pray. Well, is there a China-Russia deal? Well, Chinese officials in early February asked Russian officials to wait until the Winter Olympics in Beijing had concluded before sending troops into Ukraine, according to U.S. officials. And with the Russian military at their doorstep, everyday Ukrainians are stepping up to fight for their freedom, their democracy, and their land. Well, anticipating Putin's next target, the Moldovan embassy to the U.S. said his country is um, prepared to defend its borders if Russia or Belarus were to invade. Odessa is preparing. Russia's invasion of the Ukraine hasn't reached Odessa, the country's third largest city. But Vladimir Putin's navy is headed uh, there and it's expected to be attacked, if not uh, already any time now. Exposing a pattern of weakness, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was mocked after pointing out that Biden was vice president last time Russia decided to invade Ukraine. 
Probably not the best thing to bring up. In a tale of two presidents, President Biden's State of the Union address was greeted lukewarmly. Ukrainian President Zelensky's speech won international praise. Not really a fair comparison, but it's being made. In a Harris assist, Vice President Kamala Harris was seen mouthing some words after the president mixed up Ukrainians and Iranians in his first State of the Union speech. A Russian journalist quit her state TV job after condemning the Ukraine invasion. Now wonders if she could be targeted over that decision. Representative Lauren Boebert to criticize the president for not taking responsibility for the 13 deaths during the Afghan withdrawal. And Fox host Hannity also criticized the president, saying he didn't pay enough homage to the 13 U.S. service members killed there. In a case of oil outrage, Ukraine-born U.S. Representative Victoria Spartz said the president and Democrats must stop indirectly funding Russia's Ukraine invasion by buying oil. Others have joined her, and as I mentioned, House Speaker uh, Pelosi is among them. Arthur Herman points out that inspiring is the word for what we've seen and heard on social media and television of the Ukrainian resistance to the Russian invasion. Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, retired, says, like it or not, America is at war with Vladimir Putin's Russia. It doesn't matter if the Kremlin tyrant is irrational, ill or crazy. The West faces a credible threat beyond the carnage in Ukraine. Rana McDaniel weighs in, lamenting. The American people are hurting right now. Groceries and gas are more expensive. Our streets are less safe and our kids have suffered through two chaotic years. Peter Navarro reminds that some of the best chess masters in the world have come from Russia and Putin is frequently compared to one. With Hollywood sanctions, major players in Hollywood are taking swift action for their of their own to condemn President Putin's actions. And uh, New York City fundraiser, New York City uh, area Ukrainian-American business owners and community leaders are raising money to support their embattled countrymen. One Russian oligarch, Roman Abramovich, succumbed to growing pressure to sell English soccer club Chelsea FC over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, some uh, Ukrainian Jews in the U.S. are asking that he be exempted from uh, some of the economic pressures, given the fact that he has been such a generous donor to the Holocaust Museum. Meanwhile, Russia continues to target civilians. A missile struck a large building in Kharkiv. And from the Wall Street Journal editorial board, Russia's failure to topple Kiev government is in a lightning strike has led to unwarranted optimism that Mr. Putin will lose this war. Ukrainians have fought splendidly, but Russian forces are still advancing in force on multiple fronts. President Biden sounded almost triumphant. Uh, in his speech Tuesday about a united NATO and sanctions against Russia. But the U.S. goal shouldn't merely be to unify the West. The goal is to stop Mr. Putin from conquering Ukraine and producing a humanitarian nightmare in the process. On that score, Mr. Putin uh, retains the advantage because he is unconstrained by the same niceties as the West. The massive convoy heading toward Kiev appears stalled. Bill Raggio, senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, explains why he believes Russia may have sought a knockout blow, but always had well-laid plans to follow on assaults if its initial moves proved insufficient. The world has underestimated Putin before, and those mistakes have led in part to this tragedy in Ukraine. We must be clear-eyed now that the war is underway. Satellite images show some of the devastation, but certainly cannot show the human toll that's being taken. Ukraine has offered to return Russian prisoners of war to their mothers who must come to Kiev to collect them. The story includes video of a Russian soldier who surrendered and was given uh, pastries and drinks. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President uh, 
Uh, Zelensky said that nearly 6,000 Russian soldiers had been killed in the conflict, as much higher count than the 498 deaths Russia has claimed. Russian mothers are losing their children in a completely foreign country, Zelensky said in a video address. Think of this number. Almost 6,000 Russians died. Russian military in six days of war. Kevin McCarthy also weighs in, pointing out that uh, Putin has invaded a sovereign nation, terrorized its civilians. His aggression will not stop with Ukraine. The Biden administration must take immediate action to keep military aid flowing to Ukraine, displace Russian oil and gas and regain global energy leadership. Twitter suspended a congresswoman for her tweet about transgender swimmer. Missouri's Vicki Hatzler statement was simple and logical. Women's sports are for women, not men pretending to be women, she tweeted. Well, Twitter suspended her account, so when women speak up for female athletes, they are punished. Bill Barr's new book predicted Putin would be more aggressive under a Biden administration. I am afraid that with a wavering, intermittently alert Joe... Uh, In the White House, in the Oval Office, Vladimir Putin will pursue Russian strategic goals more assertively and feel like uh, little need to find agreed upon frameworks with the United States. He wrote he served as attorney general under George Herbert Walker Bush and Donald Trump. Given Biden's manifest weakness, Putin is likely to feel he's better off making no concessions at all, he added, before going on to argue that demonizing Putin is not a foreign policy. Senate Mitch, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell argues that Biden's disastrous pullout of Afghanistan was a message to adversaries like Putin that America was rethinking our forward leaning position in the world. If we had not cut and run in Afghanistan, I do not think Putin would have tried to invade Ukraine. Well, Democrats are planning to call any opposition to Biden's Supreme Court pick racist uh, seems to be their um, main argument uh, for Everything lately. The story includes a series of cries of racism already just for suggesting Biden shouldn't choose based on race, a concept with which most Americans of all races agree. D.C. schools ignored CDC rules, forcing kids to uh, keep wearing masks. The school system continues to bully the most vulnerable and New York subway crimes are skyrocketing just as the new mayor is working to beef up police. President Biden stumbled when he asked uh, when asked rather how Catholicism squares with abortion in the video after stumbling for over 10 seconds, the president who judged and fired those who refused to get vaccinated said, I'm not going to make a judgment for other people. David Harsenyi, he says this was all this has always been the most cowardly position on abortion. First of all, uh, Biden wants to compel us to do all kinds of things based on his moral outlook. But if he believes the unborn is a life, um, uh, As he has claimed, supporting abortion is also a judgment for other people. And China rejected Democratic nations' call to join sanctioning Russia. The J6 committee is alleging criminal conspiracy by President Trump in the Capitol riot. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's uh, committee is composed entirely of anti-Trump lawmakers, so it's no surprise that they alleged on Wednesday that Donald Trump and members of his administration engaged in a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States. A New York judge blocked a state AG's attempt to kill the NRA. New York State Supreme Court Judge Joel Cohen blocked the state attorney general Letitia James crusade to eliminate the National Rifle Association. James is seeking to destroy the NRA by targeting the organization's leadership for allegedly illegally allocating millions of dollars for their own personal use. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. Also in the second hour, we'll hear from Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down, a storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, we'll hear from Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down, a storyteller's journey uh, with those who dared to follow Jesus. That's coming up in our next couple of segments. Also, this uh, Russian artillery fire is blasting Ukraine's largest nuclear plant, sparking a, a fire hours after international atomic regulators warned combat at the facility could wreak havoc That's according to Ukrainian authorities. The troops are shelling the largest nuclear power plant in uh, Europe. Well, video posted uh, to Telegram, an encrypted messaging app early Friday local time, appeared to show a projectile landing outside the facility, creating a large fireball. Uh, Ukraine's Minister of Foreign Affairs tweeted that Russia forces were firing from all sides on the facility. Fire has already broken out. A uh, claim that appears to be supported by grainy live stream video. If it blows up, it will be 10 times larger than Chernobyl. Again, I hope we're all praying. Well, the Ukraine refugee count tops 1 million. The United Nations voted to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine and calls uh, for its withdrawal. The International Criminal Court has opened war crimes investigation. And the Russian economy is taking serious blows, the Kremlin acknowledges. Jerome Powell expects a quarter-point Fed rate hike this month. The Illinois Democrat ex-House Speaker has been charged with racketeering. And the U.S. trucker convoy protest in Washington, D.C., well, it pretty much flopped as no one showed up. Well, on this day in history, 1791, <clears throat> Congress passes a measure taxing distilled spirits. It is the first Internal Revenue Act of U.S. history. 1845, Florida becomes the 27th state. 1863, President Abraham Lincoln signs a measure creating the National Academy of Sciences. 1931, the Star-Spangled Banner becomes the national anthem of the United States as President Herbert Hoover signs a congressional resolution. 1959, the United States launches the Pioneer 4 spacecraft, which flies by the moon. 1985, coal miners in Britain vote to end a year-long strike that proves to be the longest and most violent walkout in British history. 1991, motorist Rodney King is severely beaten by Los Angeles uh, p- uh, police officers in a scene captured on amateur video. 2002, voters in Switzerland approved joining the United Nations, abandoning almost 200 years of formal neutrality. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, a space capsule with a large-sized test dummy named Ripley reaches the International Space Station in a test flight commissioned by SpaceX. Well, the American Medical Association now tells doctors, use woke language. It's issued a 54-page guide telling doctors things like, don't say equality, say equity. Don't say minority, say historically marginalized. Well, much of the AMA's advisory sounds like Marxism, exposed property rights, individualism is problematic, corporations limit prospects for good health, people underpaid and forced into poverty as a result of banking policies. That's all in there. Well, this is um, too much, even for some on the left, like writer Matthew Iglesias, 
whose article about the AMA caught lots of people's attention. Can you imagine anyone actually doing this? He writes in his, uh, or rather says in his new video, what would happen if you were in a clinical setting and somebody starts giving you this lecture about landowners? Nobody practices medicine like that, and it wouldn't be uh, helpful to anybody. Well, he points out that while the AMA now tells doctors to call poor neighborhoods systematically divested, not poor, it is uh, long lobbied for things like... um, that hurt people, hurt poor people, like restricting the number of doctors. Well, the U.S. has fewer doctors per capita than other countries. Per person, Austria has twice as many. We have the best paid physicians in the world and the scariest physicians in the world, said Glacius. Uh, That's not a coincidence. Well, years ago in most of America, anyone could practice medicine. Licensed doctors didn't like that. That led to the formation of the AMA. Uh, They're a trade group, he says. They advance the interests of their members, like the teachers union or the uh, dock workers union. That's what they do. It's called a trade association rather than a union, but it's never been all that different. Well, in 1986, the AMA called for smaller enrollment in medical schools to curb an alleged doctor surplus. In 1997, it even got the government to pay hospitals not to train doctors. Well, today, the AMA supports rules that make it hard for doctors from other countries to practice here. Foreign doctors must complete a U.S. residency program. They don't get credit for having practiced abroad. Well, these rules preserve um, America's doctor shortage. That shortage allows average doctors to make more than um, uh, $200,000 a year. Well-paid doctors can be choosy about where they work. It's why it's tough to find a doctor in rural America. Well, there are lots of Walmarts and Targets in rural areas because there's a lot of uh, there's no limit on big stores. Walmart and Target compete to serve as many communities as they can. Likewise, restaurants keep time that's convenient for their customers. Doctors keep hours that's convenient for doctors. When asked the AMA in an interview about this, uh, but uh, it was um, it declined rather. It said a statement saying it has worked to approve. Um, approximately 20 new medical schools. Why does the AMA and its uh, uh, liaison committee on medical education even get to approve new schools? Well, you don't get to approve TV reporters. Why should they? Doctors. Well, the AMA statements, uh, uh, statement rather claims it supports increasing the number of physicians. If that's true, it's long overdue. A study in Annals of Internal Medicine says that if there were more primary care doctors, 7,200 lives would be saved. Since doctors are scarce, more people go to nurses for help, but AMA lobbyists push for laws that require nurses to be supervised by a doctor. Well, that makes it much harder to open retail health clinics that offer low-cost, high-convenience treatment. Nurses have a lot of training. There's a lot of useful stuff that they can do. The AMA lobbying hurts poor people which, of course, we're not supposed to refer to as poor people most. Well, the AMA doesn't like talking about that. Instead, it's now obsessed about politically correct language, telling doctors don't say ex-cons, say formerly incarcerated. Don't say slaves, say enslaved people. I'm not sure how one is better than the other. It's hard to imagine how that helps patients. Well, Glacius uh, concludes that getting really obsessed with language politics is a good way to position yourself as a, the good guy without addressing your own role in creating the problem. And that's precisely what the AMA seems to be doing at this point.
The good news out of Iran, and those two things don't typically go together, but Iran's house churches are not legal, so says a Supreme Court justice. Now, in Iran, it's not a precedent-setting ruling. You can have one Supreme Court justice make that ruling and another something entirely different. But after unprecedented ruling asserts practicing Christians at home is not a national security threat, a prosecutor dropped charges against eight converts and says apostasy is not a crime under Iranian law. Now, this is one case in one area. It doesn't uh, signal that this is going to be a change in Iran. But nine Iranian Christians from one area uh, facing national security charges had them dropped. What an answer to prayer. It was impossible, and yet that's the uh, the outcome. Currently, at least 20 Christians are jailed in Iran because their faith was deemed a threat to the Islamic Republic National security of the more than 100 Iranian believers in prison since 2012 all have faced similar charges. But a recent decision by that Supreme Court justice gives hope to them all. So as you're praying for the persecuted church, be encouraged and continue to pray. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up next, uh, my conversation with Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down, a storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus. Stay with us. We'll be back momentarily. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in the first century, believer didn't just mean someone who heard and agreed with Jesus. It actually meant someone who acted on that belief. And when the outside world saw the faith of these new believers, they declared they turned the world upside down. You can read more in the 17th chapter of Acts. Well, that's the kind of believer my next guest, Charles Martin, wants to be. The kind who understands that the truth of Jesus' life, death and resurrection is so powerful It reshaped history, the kind of believer who lives with that same world-changing faith today. Well, in his second nonfiction work, They Turned the World Upside Down, a storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus, he uses his talents as a novelist to walk readers through the lives of the disciples in the aftermath of the resurrection and as they spread the message of the gospel and turn the world upside down. He illuminates key moments from scripture and shares stories from his own life as a disciple. Well, Charles Martin is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with 15 novels and two nonfiction books. He and his wife, uh, Christy, they live in Jacksonville, Florida. He joins us today to talk about his latest nonfiction. They turn the world upside down. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I have to tell you, you write beautifully. And the fact that you're a novelist, I think, was very evident, even in the prologue, as you um, wrote a little bit about the, the events that took place following Jesus' resurrection. You painted such a vivid picture that for the first time I imagined aspects of the story that I had never thought of before. So kudos on just writing well and telling a story we all need to hear in such a compelling way that we... Uh, I think readers will be uh, compelled to go deeper. Well, I did that. Thank you. I did that then, and, I, and I, even today, when I'm you know working on whatever's coming next. I, anytime I deal with scripture and I'm I'm looking at it through the lens of me as you know Charles Martin, the novelist, I remember the admonition and revelation that says it's really it's really bad for anybody that comes along and adds to this thing. So I'm trying to like the the thing that you talk about, where I'm adding color or flavor or whatever. I'm trying to interpret scripture using scripture. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping that I've not added. I'm hoping that I've, I've you know I dug into scripture enough 
And I'm able to, you know, draw from it, draw from history and add some, I don't know, something that wasn't there before that kind of brings you into it. And, and I think I'm also careful to say, look, Scripture is here. It says what it says. I'm kind of over here. I'm trying. I don't know that what I'm saying is absolutely perfect. I don't know that so-and-so was standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. But if he had done to me but what he did to them, I'd be there. So anyway, that's how I went about it. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciated that you... You gave some context that helped me to relate. It wasn't adding to the story, but you reminded us, for example, when they're standing in a particular place, the events that took place in the surrounding area. And it, it gave me a context that I don't know. I, I just marveled at. So I, I think you've done a good job without adding in a way that Scripture says you shouldn't. So let me just commend you for that. Thank you. Well, let me ask you, what motivated you to take on this uh, story? It's a nonfiction book. And as I mentioned, most of your writing has been uh, fiction, but you've taken on uh, perhaps one of the most fascinating stories following the resurrection of Jesus, of his disciples and what it meant, what it took to turn the world upside down. Why take this on? Well, I was, I don't know, I was 12 or so novels kind of into my career, and I was sitting there one day, uh, and I began having a kind of a conversation with the Lord saying something that sounded like, Lord, I'm really grateful that you let me do what I do, but if I could push pause on my fiction, I would love to to sort of tell the story of you and me and kind of what you've revealed to me about you through your word. And long story short, I, I, I pitched my publisher. She liked the idea. She'd seen some of the stuff I'd done before. So that, that produced a book called What If It's True? Where I really look at, mm-hmm. you know, is scripture, is it really true today? You know, can we look at it 2,000 years after Jesus said those things and are they as true today as they were then? Well, when I finished that, she, <laughs> Daisy said to me, do you have any more nonfiction? I said, well, the story's not over. It doesn't end at the cross. There is an empty tomb. And uh, she said, okay, write that one. So they turned the world upside down. really came out of me looking at the lives of the disciples who, when he walked into the upper room, Jesus' own description of them is that they were filled with unbelief. So he takes them from a place of unbelief and not being able to just wrap their head around what they're looking at. And by the time we get to Acts 16 or 17, when Paul walks into Thessalonica, he and those with him are described as these who are they who have turned the world upside down or upended the inhabited earth. And it's really a derogatory term because they now have what people people perceive as the power to take on Rome. So it was just me wanting to write part two of the story because it, you know, the story of Jesus doesn't end at the cross. There is an empty tomb. Let's let's take a moment and uh, consider what it means to turn the world upside down. I mean, most of us don't really create even a breeze in the world. They turned the world upside down. These were not people who had the completed scriptures. They were living out what (laughs) would become the completed scriptures, but they had received the power necessary to make such a dramatic impact on the world they lived in. They didn't have the freedoms and the resources that we have, and yet they literally turned the world upside down. Can you comment on that fact for a moment? Well, when these folks, you know, Jesus Jesus ascends off the Mount of Olives, and he, you know, all of the disciples and their families are there with him. They watch him disappear, something like Haley's Comet appears. And those folks start walking down the mountain. And I think, you know, Scripture doesn't say this, but I think every single one of them walked down that hill thinking to themselves, okay, what on earth do we do now? We have his commands. We've walked with him. We've followed him. We know what he 
told us to do, but we don't have the power. And then a couple of days later, the roof starts to shake and Pentecost occurs and they are filled with the spirit of God because he's been sent from the throne room to fill them. And from there, they walk out of there now empowered to do the very thing he said to do. Jesus told him, he said, these things I've done, meaning these miracles I've done, these signs and wonders, these things I've done and you will do because I go to be with the Father. So they just believed him. And this is one of the things I try to talk about in the book. They believed what he said, and then they just went and did it. It was believe and do, believe and do. It was really that simple. It wasn't rocket science. If it was, we certainly couldn't do it. So, <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Well, what's your take on the <laughs> disciples? Why do you think Jesus chose these particular individuals uh, to, to serve in this way and ultimately to orchestrate the upheaval of the the entire known world? Well, that's a great question. I don't know. Sometimes I get asked questions like that. I think it's above my pay grade. Maybe a more <laughs> a fair question for me is why would the Lord choose me? And yeah. I can't answer that one either. I, I don't know. I can't understand why the God of the universe, this one that we read about in Revelation, whose eyes are a flame of fire, hair white, you know, sword coming out of his mouth, name written on his thigh, feet of burnished bronze. But he sits on a throne and there are 24 elders around him and they're all on their face and they've thrown their crowns at his feet and the heavenly host is singing at the top of their lungs. And I don't pretend to understand all of Revelation or what it means. or you know, I, I mean, All I know is that King of Kings, that Alpha and Omega, that beginning and that end, who spoke all of this and you and me into existence, left that throne to come here on a prisoner swap, a rescue mission for us. And I can't, I'm not worthy of that. And I can't wrap my head around it. So why did he choose them? I don't know. I have even less answer as to why he chooses me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your first chapter is um, titled The Death of the Only Innocent Man. And that would, of course, be Jesus having lived a sinless uh, life. And uh, again, you sort of fill out um, the picture of the events that we know Scripture uh, describes for us of what happened. And I, I guess uh, the book really focuses on what happens next. You have these ordinary guys who have proven themselves incapable of grasping everything that Jesus says, incapable of uh, having the courage to stand with him at his most challenging moments. And he has now charged them with bringing the gospel to the world. Um, and they have to have had some confusion about what that meant or how they would go about it until Jesus fulfilled that promise that he would send his spirit. Sure. I try to look at their lives through the lens of what did the Lord have to do in them mm -hmm. after the resurrection? Because they're all a bunch of misfits like us. I mean, uh, take, for instance, the loudmouth spokesman, you know, of the group, Peter, who at uh, the crucifixion, we all know, denies Jesus. And so he and, and, and then upon the resurrection, he's he's full of shame. He's draped in shame, wrapped in it. And he doesn't quite know what to do. He knows Jesus has returned but he can't even face him. So he, he, he does the thing that he, the only thing he knows to do, which is go back to his previous life. So he says, I'm going fishing and all the other jokers following back, back to the North into the Galilee. And notice Peter is now no longer following Jesus. He's back in his old life doing what he knew to do. And he's draped in shame. And we see this beautiful story of Jesus drawing Peter back in. And he, you know, he builds the fire on the bit of charcoal fire, which immediately brings Peter's mind back to the night he did, he betrayed Jesus and denied him because he was around the 
He's there with the girl, and he's around a charcoal fire. So as soon as Peter smells that, he's like, oh, no, my goose is cooked. And he sees Jesus, and he also doesn't say, hey, tell me to come to you. He doesn't feel worthy to walk on water, so he wraps his cloak around him, which is different than anybody else, like Bartimaeus threw his cloak down. Peter wraps his around himself to go swimming, lands on the beach. He can't even look Jesus in the face, and in just beautiful Jesus, mercy-filled fashion. He restores Peter. And it's just this beautiful, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, Lord. And and, then Jesus says the very two words that Peter needs to hear, which is, hey, follow me. And now he knows he's not disqualified. And from there, we see the shame fall off him. And in Acts 2, Peter walks up and gives probably the second best sermon in the history of sermons. And 3,000 people are added to the number. And Peter becomes who we all hope he becomes. And so, I don't know, I just looked at it from the standpoint of what did the Lord need to do in these people to get them to the point that they're effective in his kingdom for his purposes and his will? And does he do that in us? And yes, I think he does. Yeah, that's the the larger question. I think it's easier for us to read the scriptures and to believe what happened with these particular uh, men who were followers of Jesus. But it's harder for us to recognize that we have access to the same Uh, power that they did. Now, we need to take a quick break. We'll pursue that when we return in just a moment. Uh, Once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with um, Charles Martin. He is the author of They Turned the World Upside Down. It's just a beautifully written uh, retelling of what the scripture says and a challenge to us. Do we have access to the same resource they did to turn our world upside down, even if that's just the neighborhood or our office? We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with author Charles Martin in his second nonfiction work, They Turned the World Upside Down. He um, uses his talents as a novelist to walk readers through the lives of the disciples in the aftermath of the resurrection and as they spread the message of the gospel and turn the world upside down. You remind us that Matthew concludes his gospel with these amazing words. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then um, uh, Mark ends uh, with this scathing account. He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Doubt was an issue for these disciples, and with that uh, backstory, we read that they turned the world upside down. What happened with the disciples that turned them from these uh, doubting, uh, questioning uh, men who had known Jesus had seen him after being resurrected, uh, and then turned the world upside down. They they weren't quite sure what to do, but gathered together, waited, and turned the world upside down. What happened? Yeah, I think they took it in baby. I think they took it in baby steps. Um, all, all all I know to when I look at them, the the, the prism through which I see them, I, I just see them taking one step of faith, and then another step of faith, and then another step of faith, and they preached the gospel of the kingdom, and they laid hands on the sick, and the sick were healed, and Demons were cast out, and, you know, the blind see and the lame walk. And they, I think they just did it as it came about. They just bumped into somebody who's blind or lame or whatever, and they say, rise and get up and walk in the name of Jesus. And, oh, they lay hands on the sick, and 
and tell people, uh, you know, believe in or believe on the name of Jesus, that he is Yeshua HaMashiach, the, the Messiah. And I don't think they got it all at once. I don't think they mastered, you know, they, they didn't they didn't get to the end from, you know, at the very beginning. I think it was a walk. I think it was, you know, they made, they goofed, they stumbled some, whatever. But I think the thing that the Lord did with them is he took their unbelief and through little acts of faith, that unbelief became belief. And belief in practice, I think, becomes faithfulness. And I think that's who they finally became. I think they became faithful followers of the Lord. You know, the scripture says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. And we walk by faith and not by sight. And I think they just did that. And something about their belief, like they they just got to the point where they believed his words more than their circumstances and more than what they could see with their eyes. You write about Pentecost and the role that played in emboldening and empowering because they were given power to do what they did that that resulted in such a dramatic shift in the known world. Um, talk a bit about uh, uh, Pentecost and the power that Jesus had promised he would provide them and the difference it made for them and whether or not it makes a difference, fast forwarding to the 21st century, the difference it might make now. Well, Pentecost falls 50 days after Passover. So Peter preaches on the southern steps of the temple. The Spirit of God falls, as he's promised a couple of times in the Old Testament. The Father says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. He did that, empowered the disciples, and then those, you know, the believers who walked with him. And we see sort of the ripple effects of that. If you follow the the disciple Philip, Philip is actually the only... The only person in Scripture who, who's given the name the evangelist, he's the only person described as an evangelist. Now, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, but the only one ever described as an evangelist is Philip. And it says that when he would enter a town, he would proclaim Christ, meaning Jesus is the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven is near. And when he did that, demons were cast out, the, the sick were healed, and people got baptized. And it was it was as if the kingdom of heaven had come to wherever he was. And for me, that's just kind of been the model. It was just really simple. Jesus, I mean, Philip just proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. He is the Son of God. He did come and live a sinless life and die on the cross for our sins. He's risen. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And to help us, he sent his Spirit. It was just, that was the gospel. So, I don't know, I think they just believed him and they did it. For many believers in the 21st century, we don't have any difficulty reading what the disciples did, their faithful service, and historically we know how many of them served um, beyond what the scriptures tell us, and many lost their lives in that, that process. But it may be more difficult to imagine that we have the capacity, or the call, uh, perhaps, uh, to turn the world upside down as our world is defined. And again, our sphere of influence may be relatively small. We may have uh, broader influence, but we have access to the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Where does our timidity come from and what do we what do we do with that? Well, I think the timidity we have is the same timidity they have mm-hmm. they had, and it was just you know it's just uh, us. I think when the the writer of Hebrews says something like, "Take care." lest any of you be overcome by a, an evil, unbelieving heart. So then and now, unbelief was kind of their problem and our problem. The thing that I 
I think, I think to some extent it may be, I don't know, I don't want to compare us to them, but we have the added difficulty now in that the gospel has been preached for 2,000 years, and during that time people have abused it. Mm-hmm. And then it certainly abused the power of the Holy Spirit. So we today, and certainly in 21st century you know, United States of America, have all of these examples of all of the places where you know, people have abused the, the power, role, truth, you know, of the Holy Spirit today. And so what, what we think of are big hair, TV, television, planes, jets, you know, the, the, I don't know, pick your abuse. But we have the added difficulty of now trying to filter through the abuse and separating it from the truth of Scripture. And one of the things I try to make a case for in the book is that the abuse that we've seen or experienced or even heard of or people have told us about does not negate the truth that, in script, that is in Scripture and that Jesus tells us and promises us, I will send the helper to you. Now, if you love me, obey my commands. So I, I try to give us, you know, a little bit of understanding that it, maybe, it's, maybe it's a different kind of difficulty for us today because we have to wrestle through the abuses, but the abuses of the few or the church or whatever don't negate the truth that is in Scripture. You not only write about the disciples who walked with Jesus and who turned the world upside down, but you write a little bit about your own journey as a disciple. Tell us a little bit about your um, your walk and your experience um, of obedience and faithfulness and uh, how you have experienced what the disciples did in God giving you the, the capacity to serve him well. <laughs> well, there's the there, maybe there's the assumption there that I've always been obedient or I've always been faithful, and neither of which would be true. But one of the things I love about um, one of the things I love about walking with the Lord and reading His Word, and, and I do love His Word. And and, it, and it's in a nutshell, when Jesus looks at all of us and He says, "Follow me," though, that that phrase "follow me" is really just an invitation to come and die. That's why Paul. That's why Paul says, "I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God." So this this thing, when we see Jesus and we we want to follow Him, I think it, 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 the, the, it, it requires us following Jesus. Requires that we take all of our rights, all of the things that we think we own, that we have a right to, that just run the gamut, and we lay them down at His feet. And we surrender all of that to him. And then we give him the right to, or we submit to the right that he can either give those things back to us mm-hmm. or he can take them. And then we draw our, our identity from him. But I, I think the, the thing for me in my walk, whether I've been obedient or faithful or not, the, the thing that I come back to time and time again is that it's a daily, I mean, that's why Jesus says, take up your cross daily. It's a daily surrender. I wake up and I surrender again, just like I did the day before. And, and I yield to him like, Lord, King, and like, what, what would you have for me today? Like, how can I serve you? And that, I, you know, I can't, I don't want to speak much about my obedience or faithfulness because Lord knows I, I, I goof, but I, I do, I do love him and I do desire to walk with him. And I, I do believe it's a daily surrender thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, the book is titled, They Turned the World Upside Down, A Storyteller's Journey with Those Who Dared to Follow Jesus. It is a story well told. 
Um, and I think it's very compelling because in addition to just telling the story, you encourage us to to consider how it relates to our walk with the Lord. And I uh, really appreciated how you managed to do that and to capture my attention at the same time. Uh, the book is published by uh, Thomas Nelson, currently available. Thank you so much for the book and for taking time to talk with us about it here today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, the book, the, They Turned the World Upside Down, beautifully, beautifully written. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. One of the things I've discovered as we've watched the events unfold in the Ukraine and are praying about the future of that nation, the Russian people who are sort of caught up in what their leaders is doing and all of that. I'm learning that Eastern Europe's evangelical hub really is in the Ukraine. And there's a scholar who was featured in Christianity Today that discussed the development of uh, of the faith in Ukraine. Catherine Warner, she's an associate professor of history and religious studies at Penn State. She went to Ukraine in 1990. She researched the nation building process there, but ended up seeing that Ukrainians' attention wasn't turning so much to politics as to spirituality. And she says there's no denying the sim- the the uh, simulaneity of the res- uh, resurgence of religion and the demise of socialism. Okay. Um, she has written a book on the subject, Communities of the Converted, Ukrainians and Global Evangelism, since the early 1990s. It's become not just the Bible Belt of the region, but a hub of evangelical church life as well. Now, this is rather um, interesting, and I didn't know that to be the case uh, in Ukraine. I, I mentioned um, yesterday that this is sort of the hub from which missionaries all over the region come. Well, how did evangelicalism become such a big deal in Ukraine? Well, following the collapse of the Soviet Union and a discrediting of an atheist policy and a realization that the secularization of Soviet society was perhaps a mistake, there was renewed interest in a variety of religious traditions. Well, evangelicalism in particular garnered a lot of interest after the collapse of communism, first because it was so anti-Soviet in the former Soviet Union as well as elsewhere, such as the United States, and secondly, because huge numbers of American and other Western missionaries came to the former Soviet Union. Well, that assisted in the development of not just awareness of evangelicalism, which is a branch of the Christian faith, but even of evangelical infrastructure like seminaries and printing of all kinds of religious literature. Now, the third reason she suggests... um, was the charitable outreach of both evangelical missionaries as well as of evangelical communities and that charitable outreach was very much appreciated and urgently needed, given that after the collapse of communism, the social service sector pretty much suffered a similar level of collapse. Uh, the final reason she uh, offers to explain how Ukraine became that hub, uh, she says that evangelical prescriptions on morality, what's right, what's wrong, arrived at a moment when the population was quite prepared to hear them. Well, there are more evangelicals now than there were at that time. Uh, who are today's Ukrainian? Uh, who is today's Ukrainian church? Well, the people who are filling these churches these days are overwhelmingly new converts. And that's because after the collapse of communism, it was possible to immigrate to the United States as a refugee. If one could prove a history of past persecution, which is 
uh, a great many evangelicals could. Now, that created something of a quandary back in the former Soviet Union. At precisely the moment when there was all this interest in religion, and in particular in evangelicalism, experienced clergy and longstanding believers, uh, by and large, had immigrated. So what would American evangelicals find familiar with what's going on in the Ukrainian church and what would be different? Well, currently in Ukraine, and this is prior to events that are unfolding now over this last week, uh, they still tend to be more conservative and traditional there. Pentecostal churches tend to be much more traditional and practical or in practice, rather, a form of moral um, asceticism that's very strict in Ukraine. So uh, should women wear headscarts, for example, a very common practice in uh, what was the Soviet Union in Russia now? The answer would be yes. And what about the music? Well, the level of musical talent and the really enormous numbers of members who participate in the musical life of the church is impressive. A great many of those churches have a whole variety of choirs and a whole variety of music, uh, musical programs, sometimes even orchestras and the like. And uh, individual members, their level of involvement in the church, and this, again, prior to events that we've been monitoring. Well, during the Soviet period, it was routine for communities to insist that their members attend four services a week. And their services usually last at least two hours. They found under capitalism in a post-Soviet society that it's very difficult to make those kinds of demands on their members' time. Still, that number of services is generally offered, but the rigid expectation that one will attend all four services in the course of a week has been somewhat relaxed uh, reluctantly. So there is a vibrant church in the Ukraine. I was not aware of the role that the church played in general in the country, but uh, the role that it's played in terms of sending uh, missionaries throughout the region. So as we pray for Ukraine and certainly the political upheaval, the war that's going on, uh, we can be praying for the church as well, that they'll have clear direction as to what God would have them do under these very, very difficult circumstances. I remember um, worshiping in a Russian church. This was many years ago. Um, and we were invited, my husband and I as musicians, to uh, join in their worship service. So the Russian uh, side would sing and they were very sober, somber dirges. And then we were asked to sing. And of course, we come from America and our music was much more upbeat and lively. And it was very interesting how the culture that they were living in reflected the the kind of music and the tenor of their music, as opposed to what we were doing that reflected our culture and um, the freedom that we had enjoyed. And I can only imagine the Ukraine church worshiping together and asking God not only for peace and protection, but for direction moving forward um, in this very, very turbulent and difficult time. Pray for the church in Ukraine and for the missionaries who have been sent out from Ukraine uh, and those who are planning to be sent out uh, or are being trained to serve as evangelists and missionaries. Well, we are out of time. I do want to uh, thank James Blend for being our producer today and Sam Moppin for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. want to let you know tomorrow we'll take a look at the headline news, the lighter side of the news, and of course, the Christian outlook. So I hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.